You're listening to episode 131 of the Tennis Files podcast. How to unlock your mind for peak mental performance with Zoran Stojkovic. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. My name is Mirban Iranshad, a Division I college tennis player. And on the show, I interview the world's top coaches, pros, and experts to help you improve your tennis game. And today's episode is about how to unlock your mind for peak mental performance. And uh, this is obviously something that we all want to achieve. We all want to just be performing on all cylinders mentally, laser focused, but there's obviously a lot of things that come into play that distract us or that put us down, uh, including ourselves, as, as we'll find out in the episode. And that's why I brought on Zoran Stojkovic, who is a certified mental performance consultant. He is also an elite high-performance tennis coach, and he has two MSc degrees in sport and exercise psychology. Zoran is also the founder of Kizo Performance at kizoperformance.com, and uh, his love for coaching and human performance development is what led him to study how elite performance prepare for competition. So obviously, us as players... We want to improve our mental game. You know, there's a saying that everything starts in the mind. You know, it's so true because whatever you end up doing physically, uh, it, for example, it, it starts with a thought in the mind. And so uh, it's uh, the most powerful tool that we have, and we have to nurture it and give it positivity and think good thoughts. And when we do have bad thoughts, we need to reframe. And so and with that, uh, I, I have brought on Zoran to talk about how we can achieve peak performance and do our very best to achieve it. And even if we don't achieve it, you know, ways to elevate our performance and uh, just really do better mentally. So um, with that, I really hope that you enjoy this very important interview on the mental game and peak performance with Zoran. And without further ado... Here is the interview. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Uh, it's really a pleasure and an honor to have Zoran Stokovic uh, on the podcast today. Uh, he's going to be talking with us about how we can unlock our peak performance. And so this is obviously something that everybody is interested in. We've had a lot of you know tough times on the courts, times where we've struggled you know, in, in our minds with what we need to do to succeed. And so th that's why it's, it's really uh, fantastic for me to bring on such a great expert like Zoran. And uh, he is a certain certified mental performance consultant, and he's an elite high-performance tennis coach as well, and he's got two MSc degrees in sport and exercise psychology. And, and uh, Zoran, what is, uh, <laughs> for those of us that don't know, MSc, what's that again? Uh, Masters of Science. So, oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. All right. Well, uh, Zoran, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's great to have you on. And, uh, you know, the first question that I have for you is, how do you 
define peak performance? That's a great question, and thank you so much for having me on your on your podcast. I uh, I love uh, I love the guests that you brought on, and and um, you you bring a lot of value to to tennis players and coaches worldwide. So I appreciate the opportunity to speak uh, speak to your audience. Thank you. How do I define uh, high performance? I define it as having the mental and physical skills to perform when you're tired, when there's pressure and at full speed. I mean, when the game's going, you know, that's how I define it. And essentially high performers work on three areas. They work on the mind, the body and the craft. And in our case, tennis is the craft. So that's how I define high performance. And uh, that's the three areas that high performers develop. Gotcha, Zoran. And and so it's really difficult, you know, to, to achieve uh, peak performance, especially when you're tired. So, I mean, what what are the types of things that we need to do or techniques or anything uh, to, to get there? Yeah, when you're tired, definitely. So it depends on whether the fatigue is an ongoing thing that you've had for a few days. So we're talking about longer recovery strategies or whether we're talking about I just had a really long game that had 10 deuces. There's a changeover. How do I recover in a minute and a half? Um, for the longer recovery strategies, uh, you can think about recovery strategies and fatigue, uh, kind of like double A batteries, triple A batteries, and quad A batteries. So the quad A are the tiniest ones. And that's the recovery strategy that you want to have every day. So that's a 15, 20 minute recovery strategies. For some people, it's mindfulness. For some people, it's prayer. For some people, it's breathing exercises or taking a power nap or those sorts of things. There's a ton of them. Reading a book. For other people, it um, so okay. Then we have the the bigger batteries, which uh, which are your kind of weekly recovery strategies, and uh, those recovery those recovery strategies include you know going away for the day not training for a couple of days to let your body recover, doing foam rolling and, and stretching and, and having, you know, days off doing ice baths and stuff like that. And then finally, if somebody's having prolonged fatigue, I mean, they should uh, consult a physician, but some things that might help with that is just going away for a couple of days with, uh, with family or friends or or just completely detaching from the environment for a couple of days and and doing those sorts of little trips um so yeah that's that's the three types of strategies and and when somebody's tired they should be using strategies within that now with uh, if we talk about a tennis match um in a tennis match it's it's all about having that routine between the points and also on the changeovers and having it be consistent and having it refuel you and give you that energy again and not not have those thoughts that drain more energy from you but uh, have the mindset or and the clear mind of recovering and fueling your body with with electrolytes and maybe a little bit like you know a banana or something that you see tennis players eating so yeah hope that answers your question <laughs> yeah it does and so that last point too i mean can you actually achieve peak performance if you're not you know, do really well mentally, but then while you're not physically in top shape, like, do you need to be physically in top shape in order to achieve peak performance? Do you need to be physically in top shape to achieve uh, peak performance? Yeah, definitely. So it's, again, it's the three, it's mm -hmm. your mind, your body and your craft. When you hear interviews from tennis players, they'll often say that in the top hundred, 
there isn't a lot of difference physically. Yeah, technique looks different, but consistency-wise, it's about the same. If they did a physical conditioning test, they'd be about the same. Really, really close. The thing that differentiates the top 10 is the mind. I mean, uh, you look at something like the ATP Cup that just happened, and there's great examples of, of really good players losing in that final, Djokovic against Nadal. Uh, it's a great example of two really good players about the same age and a really tough mental battle, right? And it's that's the kind of thing. When you get to the top three, it's even more of a nuance. It's even more of a nuanced thing of who's actually not just doing what they did last week or, or last month, like who's not not necessarily doing more, but who's changing things up. Like who's working on their serve technique to make it like 0.1% more efficient? Who's working on their on-court fitness? Who's working on the mental toughness and uh, and visualizing and stuff like that? So I, I definitely say that uh, physical, while the physical is the base, I'd say the and, and you have the technical skills and tactical skills, the mental is the thing that at a certain point separates you from the pack. Gotcha, Zoran. And so you know when you think about peak performance, like it in some sense the word peak itself makes it seem like this is something that you would do like once in a while or something like you'd, you'd peak at, at certain points. So how frequently can somebody achieve uh, peak performance? That's a great question, isn't it? And I'm not sure that I know the answer to that, but I can, I can tell you what I do know. Peak performance, or if we talk about being in the zone or being in flow, it's a very elusive state. I mean, even pro athletes talk about being in that state a couple of times in their career. We're talking complete absorption in whatever you're doing. You're seeing the ball or you're not here in the crowd. You're only seeing the ball and the court and your opponent, and that's it. Uh, so it's a really tough state to be in. And um, so what? how much of the time players spend in that state, I, I'd say it really depends. I'd say players hover around that state quite a lot of times. But we also know as tennis players that sometimes our plan A is not working because for whatever reason, we're not composed, a line call gets us mad, whatever it is, uh, you know, maybe we didn't have a good night's sleep the night before, it might be something that's happening off the court at work or um, with a partner, and those things carry on to the court. So then it's about saying, okay, I'm not playing at my peak performance, I'm not, my plan A is not working, so I, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to go for that killer wide serve anymore, okay, now I'm going to... I'm going to tone it down. I'm going to go for a body serve uh, and go with my plan B. My plan B is X, Y, Z. Here's where I hit my forehands. Here's where I'm going to try to hit my backhands and that sort of stuff. So so I, I don't think, uh, I think peak performance, I think the, the better word that people should be thinking about is my top performance on a given day. I mean, you're not going to be at 100%. You can't play at 100% on every day, but if it's a 60% day, it's about giving 60 out of 60, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Zoran. Appreciate that. And what are some things that we're doing in today's society that maybe cause us not to achieve, uh, you know, our true potential? I mean, you know, one thing that I can think off of the batter, a lot of distractions like, you know, our phones and uh, TV shows and stuff like that, where maybe we gravitate towards what is like feels better in the, the short term. And then that causes us to do things that aren't uh, conducive to peak performance or productivity. So uh, what things do we do in society that you've seen from your clients that you've had to change in order to help them uh, do better and perform better? Society is in a 
tricky space because there's a big premium put on achieving at a peak level, at a high level, and what's being forgotten is the recovery. And so that's thing number one, paying attention to recovery and actually putting in a recovery protocol after your matches, saying, okay, in the hour after my match ends, here's my recovery protocol. You see the pros doing it. You see peak CEOs doing it. We see top surgeons doing it. What's the reason that we wouldn't do it and learn from them? Because they're doing, it seems to be working for them. The other thing is, yeah, as you mentioned, the technology is a great tool, but it's also really accessible. And what it does is, and I, I mean, it's for all of us. I'm not saying I'm any different. It gives you that, it sometimes gives you that false sense of achievement when you're you know, playing a game on the phone, you're unlocking levels, or you're playing a game on the computer, and you're unlocking levels, and you're doing things, and your reward centers in the brain get hit, and it's like, yeah, I did something. And okay, you did, and maybe it's, you know, if you're a pro gamer, cool. But if, if somebody who's, you know, what happens is when that center gets satisfied, then you won't go on the court and give it as much, if you know what I mean. So that motivation and that will kind of wears out. And I'd say the third thing that we're, we're doing as a society that, that could be better uh, with respect to, to, to performance and, and peak performances, at a young age, we're starting, we're giving too many participation medals. So I think that what happens is when we give participation medals in tennis tournaments, what happens is the kids that won and that really tried and that did really well, it kind of dissuades them from trying because they're not any different. And I think there's a reason that that winning feels good and that losing kind of hurts and and that's okay. Uh, it's okay. You know, sport is a great teacher of that. So uh, we should keep it, keep it like that and keep it pure without making it too crazy. Like I've seen, yeah, anyways, I've, I've worked in some academies in the world and I've, I've also seen the other side of it where it gets way too competitive and just not, not a good, like people getting into fights and tournaments. So it's not, not, a, not a good, side but yeah that's great stuff Zoran and so how do we find that balance you know especially this is maybe a nice question for the younger crowd uh, of the podcast uh, as far as like especially when you're younger like you know not giving out too many participation medals like you said but also making it you know fun and not too crazy like you had seen in the academies I'd say that would take what uh, Tennis Canada and as far as I know at USTA are looking to to do which is to have those tournaments we we have tournaments of different tiers so I think that that's helpful like you have uh, somebody who's playing a tennis tournament for the first time is not going to be like when I was a kid and when I played a tennis tournament for the first time I played a tournament like with the big boys and I got whooped but I loved it so I kept playing somebody else might have not played right uh, so what they have now is they have these tournaments for first timers. They have these tournaments where it's a day tournament. You get a feel for the game. It's a great first experience and first involvement with competition. And I think that, uh, so I think that's definitely a good step. Uh, speaking to adult tournaments, I'd say it's a little bit different. It's maybe, maybe about creating that social part of it. Uh, I do think people, one of the reasons people participate in sport is the social part of it why people belong to clubs is a social aspect of it. And they love the people that they play with and maybe the coaches. And so if tournaments were to create some sort of social component of a tournament, that I think that would be kind of neat. And I think uh, that would 
bring more people back to play and people would feel good and it wouldn't only be about competition. Like you're still competing, right? But um, it would have that other side of it as well. Awesome, Zoran. And so you mentioned recovery, which is super important. I'm actually reading a book right now, rereading it called, uh, it's called The Miracle Morning and it's really helping me to wake up earlier in the day and, and have a more powerful start to the day. Uh, looks from your smile that you probably read it. Um, but I was wondering, you know, you mentioned recovery. How do we kind of figure out like what recovery we need for us and also like how much sleep we need? Because I know it varies as well. Yeah, you're definitely right that that it varies. And how do we figure out how much recovery we need? It really depends on your workload. Uh, And I don't I don't have a formula or an easy answer, but your body knows. So what it takes is us listening to our body and giving ourselves those moments where we're not distracted, where we're just sitting. And if I'm feeling tired, well, maybe it's because I haven't slept enough. If I'm yawning a lot during the day, that might be a sign that, hey, I should be getting maybe an hour more of sleep. Sleep. So again, yeah, you're right. Waking up earlier is super awesome. But to get that to happen and to stick to that, you go to bed earlier as well, right? So and in terms of recovery strategies, just figuring out what kind of person you are. Do you recharge when you're with people sometimes? Or do you recharge when you're on your own? Or is it a blend? Right? Because it's it's not like one or the other. Like, where do you lie? Okay, today I feel like going out with friends and grabbing a coffee or hanging out or or whatever? Or do I feel like sitting at home and reading a book? Do I feel like going for a walk on the beach? So there's there's so many recovery strategies. Uh, and it's really about just plunking them into the day every day. For people that work office jobs, a lot of sedentary time, like a lot of time sitting, will create that tired feeling. So going for more of those walking meetings, taking the stairs to the sixth floor, getting a standing desk, or if you have a standing desk, raising it so it's standing, those sorts of things. I think those are, it really depends on your environment. And it's kind of about looking around and saying, okay, look, here's where I can throw these little nuggets of movement, exercise, uh, maybe, you know, a couple of mindful breaths here and there before meetings, that sort of stuff can, can really compound and, and add a lot. Good stuff. And I'm kind of curious to maybe step back and kind of see, you know, how you learned so much about this area and, you know, things that you studied and, and kind of your path to gaining all this knowledge. Oh, man, that's a, that's a story. How much time do you have? <laughs> as much um, as you want. <laughs> um, so when I was, a, I started playing tennis when I was about like grade eight. So I think about 14, 15, 14 years old. Mm-hmm. Really fell in love with the sport, started playing tournaments soon after. What I noticed is I'd practice really well and I'd really destroy it in practice. And I just, and then you get to a match, fall mm-hmm. apart. It's like, I forgot. Arms are tight, so I can't execute the shots anymore. What's going on? I'm nervous between the points. My head is racing. So I started reading some articles uh, from the ITF, so International Tennis Federation, um, about that sort of stuff. But I mean, 15 years ago, wasn't really great articles on it. So the articles would say, okay, let's talk about confidence. Here's how to be confident. You have to think positive thoughts and like, just be confident. If you want to focus, you don't get distracted. Like you just got to focus. And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm looking for practical strategies. This is not really giving me anything. <laughs> so I bought, I read the first book I read on the mind game is Tim Galloway's The Inner Game of Tennis. That's a 
for any of your listeners, that is a great book, and it's it stood the test of time. It's it's about forty years old or something around that, and it's it's a really good book. When I read that, I started to uncover some of the things, but I still wasn't satisfied. I had I was hooked. I was hooked to this mind game to to uncover what what was you know what what I could do better. So I started taking psychology classes in my undergrad, and then eventually got to my master's. Moved to Europe to do my master's degrees, and uh, started to delve deeper into it. But then I actually came back to Canada and started working with uh, with athletes, tennis players, hockey players, basketball players, soccer players, all sorts of athletes. And it then I really started to uncover what that means, and that it's it's very personal, and what the mind game really is, and when we talk about recovery, um, you know, being having people around you burn out and get sick because of stress, having you know your own health, you know, like I've had health issues as well where I burn out, get stressed, eating not great food, like not fueling my body, and then seeing a toll. And so, so that's that's been a big teacher. My own body has been a big teacher, and applying what I've learned in in the numerous books and articles and 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 degrees that I've done, that's been that's been the biggest teacher. And through talking, of course, talking to wise people, wise people in all all sorts of areas in in the spiritual realm, in uh, fitness and conditioning, in health, and in all sorts of uh, high performance professions, that's been a big eye opener for me. And so yeah, that's uh, that's the gist of it. And I can't believe I shortened it for you. I, that's usually a fifteen-minute story. <laughs> Maybe we'll have another episode about your entire story. We'll see. But uh, so uh, you know, out of all those studying or all those resources and people that you've talked to and studied, I mean, this is a tough question, I'm sure. But what is the most important thing that you'd say you've learned about uh, the mental game and peak performance? The most important thing that I've learned. It is a tough question, but I think it's really simple. The mind game is, or the mental game and mental conditioning is underrated. And I know because I, I was one of those people that was like, nah, you can't work on that. That's you're born tough or you're born not. But one of the most important things I learned from talking to all those people is, no, you're not born that way. You work on it and you develop it. You work with a coach, you read, you self-reflect, you talk to people, you try things and you fail and you try things and you succeed. And so that's the most important thing I learned from it, that it's underrated and that it really takes deep work and hard work, but that it's so worth it. Um turning a losing mentality into a winning mentality really not a not an easy question it what it boils down is what it boils down to is is confidence and building that belief that you can do it and confidence is made from uh, a couple of different parts it's made from we have the physical repetition and then we have the mental uh mental rehearsal and the physical repetition is essentially what you the physical repetition is what you is having been in the match and having having faced like having you have to face break points to know what that feels like and you have to succeed in winning break points or holding and closing out games you know that are deuce 
you have to, you have to, like, you have to succeed in that and give yourself opportunities to do that in a, in an intense and pressure situation, whether that's in practice or in a tournament or, or in test matches. I don't call them practice matches. I call them test matches. So that's one piece of it. So that, that physical repetition, uh, so it's that, it's the fitness and conditioning. So having the, the physical skills and the mental skills to, to act, uh, f- just the physical skills, like the body skills and working on, um, on sprints and working on the spider drill and, and different things like that to, to get to uh, different parts of the court. And the mental rehearsal is that piece of the three things that you can control. So it's, it's uh, ACE, so it's the attitude, concentration, and effort. That's it. And those three things fall within your, your one meter radius. That's it. I don't control the opponent. I don't control the umpire. I don't control the fans or my, my partner who's watching me on the sidelines or anything like that. So, so that's important. And then doing those visualizations, and we're, I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later. And then um, having, yeah, the attitude, part of the attitude is how you speak to yourself. Are you a person that's internally positive? Are you a person that's internally critical? Okay, so that's a continuum. Do you want to move towards one side or the other? Do you want to become more internally positive? And we're not talking butterflies and rainbows. and, and that, No, we're talking like optimism and, and positivity and believing that you can do it and, and overcome uh, setback and adversity and, and that sort of thing. So, What's an example of, um, you know, speaking of self-talk, it's something negative that players normally say and then how can you flip that around and what would you say instead? Players will say to themselves all sorts of things, man. Like it's, they'll say to themselves things that they wouldn't say to their family member. And it's like, why would you say that to yourself? Some of the things that people say to themselves are, you suck. Um, I'm not going to use, I'm not going to curse on this podcast, (laughs) but you can, you you can color, you you can kind of use your imagination uh, for that one. Uh, But you suck. I can't do this. Uh, he's better than me. She's better than me. Why am I even playing? I'm tired. Um, I can't hit my shots. I can't, I'm going to double fault. Like if you think I'm going to double fault, you will double fault. Like I've, I've lived that. Like I know that mm. like that, that's just how it happens. Uh, and then flipping them. How do you flip them? Well, you can either have some sort of, uh, refocusing strategy as part of your focus plan where, okay, when this sort of thinking or these sort of thoughts come to mind, here's the phrase that I say to myself. Next point, this point, return, serve, combat, mm. fight, whatever it is. And that's, that's got to be personal. I, got, you know, I don't want people taking those just because I said them. Like, think about what, what clicks with you. What's, what's a word or a phrase that's going to give you that power? And then say it. Say it in those moments. And it's kind of like your mental reset. Or the other strategy would be to do some breathing when those kind of thoughts come to mind. Look at the ball, focus on the ball, feel the hairs on it, look at the seams on it, and do some do some, do a couple of deep breaths. You don't have a lot of time. Like there's no shot clock, and for your listeners, probably not a 25 second shot clock, but uh, you have about half a minute, you know, to reset, and that's uh, that's a good amount of time. Yeah, and. Um... I've definitely had many, many times where I've stepped up to the line and then, you know, I'm bouncing the ball and all of a sudden the devil on the right, my right shoulder or whatever will say, you're going to double fault. And, you know, I have to kind of reset, take a breath and then kind of think about the strategy that I need to employ. And that kind of helps. Uh, And also what's been helping is we might talk about this later, too, but is meditation that helps me also like refocus, um, you know, in these types of situations. So. I want to kind of get into like almost maybe a step-by-step type of 
you know, guide maybe. So, you know, before a match, a big match or tournament, I mean, what types of things should we be doing? Well, either the night before that morning, like types of things that we can do to, to really give us the best chance to have a great performance. We're talking the night before a match. Yeah, we can go night before and then forwards. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's say it's Friday night. You have a match on Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. I'd say f- do the thing that relaxes you. So, you know, the night, you know, maybe it, you have a practice the night before. Uh, you're not practicing for long. Like an app, you're not practicing for three hours because then mm-hmm. your body's going to be fatigued. So we're, we're looking at periodized training, right? So you're in your competition phase. And, and so an hour, maybe an hour on the court, even 45 minutes, not more than 75 minutes. On the court, just feeling your shots, uh, playing a couple points, maybe doing a tie break or two. You're not playing sets. Like you could play sets, but you're not playing like a couple of sets. So that's, that's the first thing. Making sure to fuel your body because that's, that might be your last meal before your morning match because you might not have uh, – yeah, so that might be your last big meal. Uh, I would avoid meat or any sort of food that takes a longer time to digest. So go something with you know carbs or something like that, maybe a plant-based diet the night before. Then getting a good night's sleep is really important. So whatever that means for you, if it's nine hours or ten hours or maybe getting a little bit extra – because you know that you're going to need the fuel in the tank uh, the next day. Getting lots of water. Uh, I don't know if this is what you meant by step yeah, by step. Yeah, no, it's perfect. Um, yeah. Yeah? Okay. So getting lots of water. And by lots of water, I mean, you know, 6 p.m. onwards, 6 p.m. To, to, to bedtime, at least a liter and a half of water. So that means... So you do the math, and if you're if you're if you're having that pra- uh, test match the night before, if you're having an on-court session, that means even more water because you're you're losing more uh, more fluids from your body. And then the last thing is, I'd say enjoy it. Like you know when you when you go to school and and you have a test the next day and and you cram and then you don't end up learning anything. It's like the best strategy is to to just trust that what you've done so far will get you ready because you're not going to do anything in the week before that's going to significantly change your performance in the match besides the things that I've just mentioned. So tennis-wise, technique-wise, you're not changing anything in the week before, right? Um, so hang out with friends and family. Read a book. Watch a movie with uh, with a friend, alone, whatever. So those sorts of things just to get your mind off of tennis. Go, go out in the town. Go for a walk. Uh, go to the beach. Do whatever relaxes you. If you look at, uh, for example, Novak Djokovic, his big thing the night before matches, he plays games with family and friends. Like he literally plays Uno and Heads Up and like board games. With, you could see this on his social media. So that's his strategy. He's, uh, he's an extrovert and he loves being around people and being with friends and family. And to him, that sense of community is important. Yeah. So again, finding the strategy and, and the thing that works for you, but Obviously, the water is for everybody. The food is a pretty consistent, consistent thing. Uh, making sure you're not training too hard in a couple of days before. Obviously, no weightlifting. So we're like, there's no weightlifting. If you do any sort of fitness, it would be skipping or an on the court kind of fitness. It's very specific to the movements that you're going to be having on the court. Meaning, uh, you're moving with your racket. You move in short bursts of 15 seconds or less, and 
yeah, I'd say that's about it. Sticking. But here's the thing. If tonight is Friday and I'm a match tomorrow I'm, and I've never done these things before, that's not good. I can't. I shouldn't be doing something new. You shouldn't be eating a new food that you haven't eaten. Like if you don't eat spicy food, don't eat spicy food the night before. Like do the things that you've already tried uh, before matches and that you know how they make you feel. So no, I'd say like no crazy new experiences in terms of food, in terms of, yeah, any, any of that sort of stuff. So just to make sure that, you know, you don't have any surprises in the morning. Matches are in, in terms of uh, in terms of upset stomach or or sore muscles or whatever. Gotcha, gotcha. And then so as far as uh, which we we mentioned briefly before visualization, where does that come into play? Is that something that you have your clients or suggest that they do like the night before, or is that something that they're doing before the match or both? Yeah. So visualizing is a skill that that takes time. So it's 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 a muscle and it. Um, it really takes time. What what I do for my clients is I have uh, visualizing tapes or they're not, not tapes, but it's, it's like an audio that you put on your phone. You put your headphones in and you listen to it, but you listen to it consistently and it walks them through specific situations and breathing exercises. And then what it does is it slowly, it gets them to visualize not only success, actually mostly not success. It gets them to visualize really tough situations and how they would get out of those tough situations. So it gets them to visualize being down uh, 40, 30, defending against a break point, serving, serving when you're down, uh, you know, 15, 15, 40, um, and then getting, winning those points and succeeding. So that's, uh, that's the sort of stuff that, uh, that visualizing is important for. Of course, if you're, if you're learning a new skill, visualizing is amazing because when you hit a shot that just feels good and that went in and it was technically good, pause for a moment. If it's not during the point, pause for a moment after the point and just say, okay, how did that feel in my body? Where, and we're not talking like, okay, where was my hand? What was the racket angle? No, that's no. How did it feel in your body? And just try to record that and uh, save that in your memory. And then you can the more you do that, you can access that. So that's another way to use uh, visualizing is you can use it in terms of seeing things and hearing things, or you can use it in the sense of how does it feel in my body? Huh. So, so when we are visualizing and then we actually like take in the senses of how it feels to, you know, hit a running forehand passing shot or something like that, how does that actually like translate into your, I don't know, physiology or, or mental game, like what happens like when you get on the court, you know, that that kind of helps you do? Yeah. So when you're visualizing, what happens is you're accessing the same neural pathways or the same parts of your brain as when you're actually executing the task in real life. That is right. So Got creating that rich uh, feeling and vision and um, and that rich those details, like coloring in the details, seeing the lines on the court, seeing the ball, right? Uh, so that's what it does. It, it does translate because you use the same part of your brain as when, you, um, when you're executing uh, the shot in real life. And that, I mean, there's science to support that. And, uh, and so I think that's, it's a beautiful thing. What, what it does as well is mm -hmm. when we talk about, so I, I mentioned those situations where people are, where people face 
the, I, I have the video, uh, I have the video, I have the audio where my clients practice getting out of tricky situations. So I'm putting them into those situations on purpose because I know that those situations will come up during the match. And then what's going to happen is because you can't, like you can't simulate match conditions in practice. Like you can do as much as you want. Like it's, it's really hard to simulate match conditions in practice. So what we do with the visualizing is do that exact thing. We're simulating things and we're saying, here's a thing that's happening. Okay. Get out of it. Like, how do you get out of it? How do you calm yourself down? Like your heart's racing. It's, you know, it's 1540. It's five, four for the other person. Like, what are you going to do? How are you, how are you going to calm down? Where you, where do you want your attention to go? Okay. I want it to go here. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to flip my racket in my hand. I'm going to go to the returning, you know, my returning position. I'm going to do my split step and hit the ball you know, cross court and, and play out the point that way. So that, so what it does, the third thing that it does is allow us to get, to prepare what we would do in certain situations. So instead of figuring things out when they happen in the match, which sometimes we have to do, so we have, you know, that's that creativity and problem solving. We're practicing those problem solving skills before the match. And because my athletes do it on a consistent basis, they have the solutions that they need when, when the tough moments and the pressure and the adversity hits during the match. So it's that consistency that allows them to, to develop those skills. Yeah, that's great. I mean, visualiz- visualization, excuse me, it sounds like it's pretty much like the best practice that you can get for your mind and body uh, to just, you know, be in those situations and then, and then figure out what you need to do to get, get out of them or, you know, be successful. What is uh, an example of, you know, a client that you've had where they've started off in, you know, a pretty bad position, you know, they've been losing a lot. And then like, what types of things did you work on with them? And then also obviously like what ended up uh, happening after that? I worked with a hockey player who, when I started talking to him, I really quickly realized that confidence was the thing that was that was lacking and that was the thing that was uh that was going to get him in not in trouble but that's going to think that if we could amp up his confidence he was going to have better results he was going to be happier with his performance he was going to be more satisfied in life it t- that took a couple of sessions to realize that's not like a, oh okay you're working on confidence let's do it boom confidence here's how you do it see you later bye no it's like that that took like weeks to, to come to that. There's a lot of questions, a lot of little trial and error and exercises. When we re- realized that confidence was the thing that he wanted to improve, we started with creating a list of thoughts that come to mind for him when he's not performing well. So what, what are some of the nasty thoughts he says to himself? And I mean, they were really bad. And it was it was things that, you know, we have 80,000 thoughts a day between, you know, 50 and 80,000 thoughts a day. And most of his were negative. Like his default mode was negative, critical. And, and so we started to work on that. And I, I, he started to catch himself saying, oh, I, I have to do this. No, I don't have to do this. I, I want to do this. Or, oh, I, I don't know if I can do this. I can't do this. No. So we eliminated Eliminated those words from his uh, vocabulary. He forgot that they exist. And very quickly, he started to see a difference. Our phase two was inserting some power thoughts or epic thoughts into his vocabulary. So these are statements 
that describe his peak performance state, how he feels, what's he doing, what's he thinking. Those sorts of uh, phrases include, I'm calm and collected, I'm unbeatable one-on-one, I take my time with my passes, I keep my head up. So those sorts of things, and it was, it was more specific, and there was about 15 of them. The final thing that we did is, we created a uh, cue card or a little index card that had, it wasn't little, it was, it was the bigger one, but it had all 15 of these statements um, on the card, and he put, he wrote that card out, put it in a couple of places. One of the places was his hockey bag, another was his uh, uh, like bedside table, another was his bathroom mirror. He's putting it in three places that he sees like a couple times a day. And our agreement was, what we agreed to do is, every time you see the card, you read it. That's it. You read it once. You can read it out loud. You can read it in your mind. That's it. After a week, he had the thoughts memorized. After two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, he started to notice that the things he was doing off um, in practice, you know, when he was saying, I'm calm and collected, like he was in practice, but then he twig and matches. He was now more calm and collected in um, games as well. So that was kind of neat. And the one of the best moments for me was when his when his father called me and said, hey, he's a different player on the ice. He's completely reborn. Whatever you're doing with him is working. Uh, the same time I get a message from him, all capitals. Hey, I whatever we're doing is working. Thank you so much. So for me, uh, it was a thing about language and how he speaks to himself, which is so big. And uh, he managed to overcome that, and, and he's, uh, he's in a great space now. He's playing college, uh, college hockey and really happy and satisfied. And, and that, that took time, right? But um, he, he put in the work. Like, he made the cards. I, I don't do this for him. Like, he made the cards. He did the repetitions. Um, and he built his conviction and belief with that so yeah introducing coco golf's signature shoe more than just a tennis shoe it's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette it's designed to enhance speed and power on the court the multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out the coco cg1 empowers you to dominate the game learn more and purchase the coco cg1 at newbalance.com yeah, that, that's fantastic i mean it's it's a similar kind of um, concept, you know, I've been reading a lot about your circle of influence and I think in a sense, you know, your uh, client there, he was, it, you know, putting all these positive influences around him in terms of the the uh, note cards and, and constantly thinking about, you know, positive things, positive thoughts and things like that. Curious too, I mean, do you also, like, how important is it to surround yourself with all other like positive uh people and because i know that you know it's it's very easy for us to, if we have like friends who are doing certain negative things and we like naturally gravitate toward that so how important is that absolutely important it's after after a kid enters i'd say high school the people around them are the biggest influence because like the parents don't really have like they can't really influence the kid anymore as much because they're they're now grown up they're not in puberty anymore they're in high school they're doing their own thing making their own decisions the biggest thing that becomes important is is the people you hang out with. Even as you become an adult, I, I believe, I forget who it was that said it, but the law of averages, that we are the average of the five people we most interact with. 
the average of the five, so the average of their beliefs, habits, um, thoughts, routines. Like if I hang out with five friends and I see them a lot, and four of them smoke, probably going to start smoking. Like I'd have to, I'd have to have really, really strong willpower and resi be resistant to peer pressure not to. And that's a visible thing. Now think about the little beliefs, values. Like yeah, that rubs off on you so hard. So it is, it is absolutely important. And where where it becomes important in tennis is your practice crew, like who you practice with. If you practice with people that don't push themselves, you're probably not going to push yourself. Like that's 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 kind of it. And so that that's where that club cu culture becomes important, and who your coach is, and who your hitting partners are. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And um, you know, let's say for, for somebody who doesn't really have like a set match like pre-match routine and they're wondering you know oh, what are some like simple basic things i should do to again give myself the best chance of performing well uh during that match like what are, what are a couple things or maybe like a simple routine that you can suggest to them uh before their match we're, we're talking like an hour and a half before a match kind of thing or an hour before the match yeah maybe hour to hour and a half you know whenever you suggest to start some sort of routine yeah yeah so Getting to the venue early is good. Watching tennis, not great. Before you match, it gets, gets your eyes tired. So that's one thing not to have in the routine. Mm. Hour and a half before, should not be eating, eating solid food. Maybe some sort of carbohydrate drink. You can make these at home. We have some on our, we have some recipes in our Instagram page. It might like Gator, because Gatorade is, is good, but it, um, it also has that artificial color, which the liver has to work hard to yeah. remove and hate that yeah so um so that's one thing uh getting lots of that in lots of water again and by lots of water i mean like a liter to you know a liter and a half of water before the other thing is setting some goals um the the clients that i work with so i'm working with a tennis player from uh from this from down in the states and uh in washington and she she really loves setting goals for the match and we have these um match analysis sheets or match intention sheets and she, she makes these intentions like what do I want to do technically what do I want to do tactically and then the beauty of it is it doesn't just stay on a paper and never read again after the match she looks at it and she does a self-rating oh I forgot about I forgot to do this or I did this often or how did this go so that's another thing that would be really good and um, you know getting just getting like a, a notebook or a piece of paper and just saying here's Here's the three things that I want to accomplish in this match. I want to hit my shots. I want to hit my first three shots of every point cross scored. I want to serve to the body. I want to serve and volley, whatever it is, technically, tactically, mentally. And the last thing is get a good warm up. And with tennis, it's hard, isn't it? Because you, your match doesn't start on time ever. You know, uh, tournaments are either early or they're late. They're rarely right on time. So you never know. Um, and so what I suggest to, to the players that I work with is check in, but don't hang out around the check-in area, like go somewhere else to warm up because they might interrupt you mid warm up and you might not be done with your skipping or whatever your, you know, your resistance band exercises. So yeah, I'd say go, go, go somewhere else, warm up, like go in the gym, parking lot, you know, out, there's a park close by, but be, you know, be on time for your match. Be, be five minutes early, but you don't need to be hanging around there half an hour early. And, you know, so, so do, do your own thing. So that, that's the three things uh, or four things is the, the hydration, uh, no food, 
if you're really hungry, might be like half a banana or a bite of a bagel with with peanut butter and jam or something like that. But no, like no meat, no no dairy and stuff like that. Um, having the intentions and then uh, having a great dynamic uh, warm up. Perfect. Appreciate that, Zoran. And what are examples? You know, you talked about goals before the the match. What are examples uh, of good goals? And then what are examples of maybe like bad goals that you've seen somebody make and then you've had to say, hey, no, this isn't like a proper type of goal. With goals, it's paramount that they follow the SMART principle, which I'm sure people know about so specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and and time bound. And that that I know that gets repeated a lot, and I get you know people are kind of bored of it. But it's that that is really a good starting place. Uh, the second pl- thing is having so okay. So what's an example of good goals? Let's start with the with the bad goal. So a bad goal would be only focusing on the outcome, meaning I want to win the match course you want to win the match Mm -hmm. like that's okay so that that, that's like a given yeah uh but you don't the thing with the outcome goals like that one is you don't control the outcome there's two players on the court and you don't that's not something you control so focusing more on the process goals and saying i'd like to come to net twice per service game i'd like to return uh to the server's feet having things that are specific uh, and saying, I want to return to the server's feet, you know, at least twice per game and writing that down. What happens is when you write it down, there's this beautiful thing that happens. You get a little nudge or reminder. Like when you're in a service game, you'll get a thought that comes to mind of, oh, wow, I haven't returned to their feet yet just because you wrote it down. So that's beautiful as opposed to just saying a goal to, you know, out loud or kind of saying it to yourself or thinking it to yourself. So those are those are examples of not great goals, and, and there's a couple of good ones. Uh, you know, saying I wanna I wanna do two breaths between between every point. I wanna inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, because that you know I tend to be amped up, so I want to be more composed. So I'm gonna do some breathing. Yeah, that's uh, I'd say that's that's about it. I mean, and and again, just being being consistent with writing them down, especially for matches, but also going into practice. And doing, putting in deliberate practice and saying, okay, if I have a coach, I have a hitting partner, we're saying, okay, here's, here's a thing that I want to improve by 1% today. Here's my 1% gain for today. If I, if I improve this by 1%, it'll be a good practice. Because if you're making those 1% gains every day, that's a big improvement at the end of the year. Compounds a lot. Um, I think it was something like you'll be 37 times better than you were if you improve 1% each day for a year. But anyway, don't quote me on that. But I read something like that. Yeah, you're, you're, yep, yep. Atomic habits. Oh, it's in my backpack. But yeah, I'm, I'm also rereading that too. I feel like the two most important things for me right now are, uh, habits and morning routine and some practicing just in time learning. Um, but, uh, so great stuff there, Zoran. Um, I also wanted to ask you about, you know, the number of, of goals that we're trying to, that we should make, you know, pre-practice, pre-match. I mean, is there, you know, cause it seems like if you're making like a ton of different goals, it might be just too much. So like, do you have like a, a baseline of number of goals that you would recommend we shoot for? I'd say the magic number is three, you know, three to yeah, five is okay. Perfect. Over five is tough. Three is a good number. Three is easy to remember, yeah. And so the, the you can, 
Um, you can divide it into technical or you could go mind, body, craft. You could go technical, tactical, mental. You could go physical, mental, tactical. But making it's good to have them in different uh, different categories. Yeah. So one one of my coaches always said he always gave us a technical goal, a tactical goal. He's an older school coach, so he didn't really know about the mind game a lot. There was no mental goals, unfortunately. But uh, one of his uh, one of his third goals for that he'd give us always would be have fun and play with your heart. And I always loved that one. That was always my favorite. Um, because if you're, if you're not doing that, you could do all the other ones, but you're not, you're not enjoying it. So it's like, just, just fight, make mistakes, laugh at yourself on the court. Like it's a tournament, but so what? Like have fun with it, make friends, talk to people on the changeovers. <laughs> like it's, it's not, you know, not, um, not, not, not that big of a deal. It makes it more enjoyable, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And so Zoran, uh, I'm going to, uh, shift over to some, uh, audience questions. And, you know, when I first saw this comment by Vincent, I thought, oh, this is a, just a funny, you know, comment. And I don't think I'm going to, like, seriously ask this. But I think I will because um, I'm sure there's some something we can learn from it. So, I mean, he framed it as I, but I'm going to ask, you know, why do players break their rackets? And then, you know, wh- yeah, I guess that's the question. Then maybe <laughs> what can we do about it? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I can think of a couple of players right now. I'm thinking of that time Baghdadis smashed a bunch of rackets. Nick yeah. Kyrgios had a had a recent one where he went into the change room or washroom and mm-hmm. almost hit that mm-hmm. ball kid with yeah. the racket. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. right. So Murat Safin, of course. Uh, and then Djokovic has had a couple of his, uh, a couple of those. Why do players smash their rackets? During a match and during, you know, the ATP tour, WTA tour, but you don't see women doing it as much. So I'm going to talk about the men's tennis. Um, in the ATP tour, when you're playing a match, there's a lot of emotions. And there's a lot going on on the court. Players are underperforming. Like it's not it's not a club uh, club player thing that you practice better than you play. Like it happens to pros as well. So they're not happy, they're tight, they're underperforming, there's pressure, they're tired. So there's a lot of emotions. Some players don't know how to manage those emotions. You look at somebody like Federer, who did smash rackets when he was in his 20s, but does not smash rackets anymore, typically. He's learned how to manage his emotions. And he's noticed that, oh, when I smash a racket, my performance goes down. For other players, it might actually be liberating to smash a racket. Yes, and it costs them, you know, five or $10,000, but they're, they're good to pay it so uh, because it's going to help them win the match. Some players... Love that. And, uh, and so why they smash their rackets, it, it does feel good. Like I, I guarantee each of your listeners, each of your, uh, <laughs> I guarantee each of your listeners, uh, can, can think of a time when they've, they've wanted to smash a racket. You know, you, you just get angry and you just want to, you just want to smash a racket, hit the ball against the wall, get that, uh, get some of that negative energy out. What I encourage your, your listeners to do is, well, to, to not, not smash rackets, but to have some sort of other release of that uh, negative or unproductive emotion, uh, whether that, that's doing something physical, squeezing your fist, slapping your thigh, throwing the racket in the air and catching it, but not smashing the racket because that, 
that creates a big spice in a big spice. <laughs> I just said big spice, a big spike in uh, <laughs> old spice, <laughs> old spice, <laughs> a big spike in uh, negative energy, which takes some time to uh, recover from. That's a great question. Yeah, great. Yeah, no, that does. And you know, it's very interesting. I, I don't know if you heard, I actually was trying to Google something uh, related to Rafa because there was a, a special on Rafa in 60 Minutes uh, by John Wertheim, I think. And he he talked about smashing rackets in that interview. And, and Rafa, and I actually didn't realize this, but it's not surprising, he has never smashed a racket. At least that's you know, what he said, but I've never seen it also. And uh, the interesting thing is it, it came down to... Uh, accountability because he said that his family would never let him smash a racket so i just i just thought that was pretty interesting and you know accountability is pretty powerful in a lot of respects like you know with building habits so i thought that was pretty cool um so but uh great stuff there zoran uh some other questions as long as you have the time at least um Great one by Felix, uh, who I used to practice with back in the day. What are some effective off-court mental toughness developing activities that you can do with a team? And I'll also add by yourself too. Uh, with a team, can you clarify on on that? What what kind of team? Um, uh, I don't know if he's playing on a team now. I mean, I would say maybe let's say in the context of either. A collegiate team, which I think Felix might have been played on, I think, or like a USCA team, just like a group of teammates. Yeah. On a team, a really important thing is is that team culture and having that having that bond off the court is really key. And because two plus two does not equal four. Um, two plus two might equal ten or seven or or eleven, but it doesn't equal four. What what that means is. Have it, putting in the time to actually do things off the court and not just practice on the court and see each other five minutes before the practice starts or five minutes after. Like, go go play play board games. Go go out for coffee together. Just just chit chat. Nothing special. That'll bring a group together and that will boost performance on the court. Uh, in terms of individual mental performance, uh, setting goals we talked about already. Setting goals is important. Uh, visualizing challenging situations on the court. Creating a focus plan, meaning, okay, what are the things that are going to be distracting? Where do I want my attention to go when those distracting moments happen? And working on that confidence by, and we've already talked about that, by, by having those, paying attention how you speak to yourself, putting yourself under pressure, and, uh, and, and being aware of where your thoughts are, and then having those, those power thoughts to to battle those moments or, or using breathing for that. So I'd say those are a couple of uh, things for individuals. And then for the team, uh, it could be similar. Like if each person on the team works on their individual stuff that we just mentioned, they're going to better the team. Right. Like, and I imagine you could do some of these things as a group too, like maybe a group visualization, like session or something like that, or group meditation maybe. Yeah, definitely. For sure. Cool, cool, awesome. Um, so we've got a question from Charlie, another good one. He asks, when falling into a pattern of being up on an opponent's serve at Love 40 to end up losing every one of those games, uh, what options are available? So is Charlie saying he's he's up, uh, the opponent is always up Love 40 on, on, hit, on Charlie's serve? Was that the question? I think he's, I think he's saying that he's, he's, 
he has a lot of instances where he's up 40 love on somebody's serve, so three break points, oh, and then he okay. like fails to break, and that happens a lot, I think, so he's wondering okay. what he could do. Yeah. yeah, closing out games, especially on the opponent's serve, not easy. Especially, Well, two things happening. The opponent steps their game up because they're about to lose uh, their service game, which hurts and not not great. And then Charlie, Charlie might be stepping off the gas pedal a little bit because he has a comfortable lead of uh, 40 love. What's important in those situations is really boiling it down to where you want to return the ball. Okay, so maybe returning it at, at the returner's feet and not going for an outright winner. So returning it at the returner's feet, maybe finding a time to come to net, doing something, you know, just hitting the ball on the court doesn't doesn't work. If you get an opportunity, like if a ball goes short, like go for it. Go for it to the to the weaker side of the player, forehand, backhand. You can go for for an approach shot down the middle to lower their angles. But it's about so it's about taking the opportunity when it comes and really focusing on where you want to return and where you want to hit that next shot right after the return. So and and visualizing that. And again, that's that's how the skills come into play. You practice it before and then you get to between the points and you say, okay, I want to return. And you picture in your mind, you go visualize uh, return at the at the server's feet. And then my next shot's going to go to their backhand. And you commit to that no matter what. No matter where they hit the ball, I'm hitting the ball to their backhand. And what that does is in the moment, you're not losing time. You know when, you, when you're when you like, I want to hit a slice, but then you end up hitting topspin and you miss it? Yeah, so you're not you're not letting that happen. You're saying, I'm committing to this for the first two shots, and then I'll, I'll play the point. Mm-hmm. You're, you're taking away that moment where you can second-guess yourself. Gotcha, so. Ryan. Awesome, great stuff. And... Uh... Yeah, just let me know whenever you have to take off. But uh, a question from uh, Doug here. Uh, what's the best way to stay in the present moment uh, so that you can truly compete, uh, you know, be competing throughout the entire match, uh, one individual point at a time? How to stay in the moment the best way. There's no yeah. there's no shortcut to that. That's a, That's a daily practice of either... Uh, you know, prayer, some sort of meditative practice, doing, I mean, and meditation, people think of meditation as, oh, I light a candle, cross my legs, put put my arms out to the side and, uh, and go into Zen. No, I mean, being, being mindful is when you're brushing your teeth, yeah. you're brushing your teeth. When you're driving, you're, you're feeling the steering wheel and you're, you're just like, involved in what's going on in the surroundings the radio's off podcast are off <laughs> we should have said that <laughs> it's okay it's all right I don't except mind. except for yours um <laughs> yeah when you're when you're cooking like the the tv shows are off you're focused on the food that's how you practice being in the moment so it's everyday situations but it's also about yes i'm focusing on my breathing so we're talking single point focus there's two types of meditation there's single point focus and there's contemplative meditation contemplative is where you're the aim of it is where you're looking to figure out what you think about something and what your inner world thinks about a certain thing and you're looking for for some sort of answer so we're going to leave that one to the side because the one um that that i'm talking about is a single point focus where you pick a dot on the wall or you're looking at a candle or you just focus on your breathing and you're always bringing your attention back to that that's how you that's a part of how you practice it but it also uh, is that other piece of integrating it into daily life and living life 
in the moment. And um, perfect. Yeah, so and. We talked about this a bit in the beginning, but just, you know, maybe it would be helpful to, to clarify uh, again. I mean, a, a question from Andy, who's a, a fellow podcaster and does a great job uh, with a couple of podcasts. He asks, how much of the game is mental versus physical? Oh, Andy, that's a that's a debatable question. That's a <laughs> so, I, you know, I've heard different answers and I've read and different uh, researchers will give you different answers and different books will give you different answers. My personal view is that tennis as a game is, I'd say the mind is about 40% of it, the body is about 30% of it, and the craft is the other 30% of it. Technique, tactics, uh, anything to do with hitting the ball, so that, so knowing when to drop shot, knowing when to slice the ball. And by craft, you mean like technique or... Is that so? It's that decision making yeah, on okay. the court as well, yeah. and so I, I divide it into into those three. Yeah. Um, what what does tend to happen is, yeah. as um, like right. in practice, right. I'd say tennis is more like I'd say tennis is like ninety percent mm-hmm. physical in practice, ten percent mental. But then when you get to a match, I'd say it's it flips. Mm-hmm. It's ninety percent mental, ten percent physical, uh, because the physical like the physical is yeah. there. Like you're you know. You got it, but it's that mental piece that's going to win it or lose it for you. Like if you start doubting your skills, even though you have the skills, mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to execute. Awesome, them. awesome, yeah. great stuff, Zary. Um, what are maybe three books or resources that you would recommend to a friend uh, besides your website <laughs> to help them play uh, better tennis? To play better tennis, yeah, I'd say uh, Tim Galloway's "The Inner Game of Tennis" is a great place to start. Uh, yeah. It talks about it. really good. It talks about that that mind game and, and how the body learns and that inner dialogue. And they could be non-tennis books too, by the way. Yeah. If you think they would help the other two, that's hard. I'm looking at my bookshelf yeah. and it's uh, that's a, that's a hard pick uh, for tennis players. What would the other, I'd say the, um, Jim. they could be non-tennis books. Oh, I, I'd say Atomic Habits is an absolute must read. That's a that's a recent one, and, and there's a reason you're you're rereading it, and, and I'm going to reread it. Um, that is a that is a gem of a book just for for life, and and you can apply it to tennis and oh. and business and whatever. Uh, and the final one would be the final one would be one of my personal favorites, which is uh, the Legacy, and that's about that's a story of the New Zealand All Blacks. And, uh, and that one talks about some of the mental skills they use, but it also talks about, um, team culture and different values. And, and so it's a short read, but I'd say it's a, it's a really good book for, for business and life. Very yeah. cool. Very cool. Also want to ask you obviously, uh, about, uh, Kizo performance and just kind of the, the, what, you know, services you offer and, and things that we can check out over there. Yeah, amazing. We we offer a ton of great services. Uh, we ha- we do individual uh, mental conditioning sessions uh, online or in person. And uh, besides that, we do coach education. So we speak at different conferences, uh, regional conferences, seminars. We do online uh, coach education and um, and and also work with some uh, NCAA teams and uh, Canadian um, teams as well. And then we do group uh, group sessions or, or team sessions, and uh, in tennis, in sport, or outside of the sport. Uh, so we speak uh, to different um, 
uh, just performance, performance in life and mental skills and mental performance for, for students and for, for business and for sport and, um, and those group sessions, there's, there's a ton, um, that we offer, but you know, there, some of them are more, um, like seminar style, some of them are more, uh, uh experiential. And finally we do parent, uh, positive parenting seminars because what we've realized is that, uh, parents are a big, a big factor for kids and we work with, uh, yes. with a ton of youth. And so we, we offer positive parenting seminars, yeah. which, which have been, uh, have been really good. So essentially those, those four things, uh, is what we do. Very cool. I'm glad you're doing the positive parenting uh, seminars too, because I just, I remembered there was two really good juniors and their dads were passionate. I'll, I'd use that word. And then actually one of them ended up <laughs> breaking the other one's arm with a racket. I mean, it's just ridiculous Whoa. stuff sometimes. Yeah. So that's intense, isn't it? Yeah. He definitely made a lot of racket. Uh, that was a terrible pun. I'm sorry. Um, anyway, not even worded well, but, uh, <laughs> that was, so that was a good, that was a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah, there you go. Sweet. I just got it. Oh my God. <laughs> well done. Uh, so we should do more of this. Um, and so if somebody wants to, like, if they're feeling like they need, you know, uh, consulting and like mental game help, like what, what do they do? Do they just go to your website and like, just like send you an email or something or a contact form? Yeah. So, uh, if they go to www.kizo.ca, there's, it'll take them to, uh, to a page, uh, where they can put their information in and we'll, we'll contact them. And we, you know, we offer different packages. Um, we have a, we have a silver and a gold package and then an, an elite package. And, um, we, yeah. So the, the first session, like the first meeting is, uh, or, or the intake session is, uh, is included. So, you know, people can, when they put their information in, we'll send them, uh, send them some information and the, they pick a time that works for them. And, uh, and we have a phone call or, or a video call and, and see if it's a good fit. And, uh, if it's a good fit for, for me and for them, then, then we, then we continue the, the collaboration and, um, yeah, and from there we we developed the mental game. Sweet, awesome. Um, uh, this is always a fun question. Uh, if you could post up a billboard in the most highly trafficked area of Victoria, BC, and and you could write any message that you wanted on it, what would it say? Oh man, caught me caught me off guard with that one. Uh, um, <laughs> what would I say if I could? Yeah, uh, take your time. Uh, it's a big billboard. Yeah, just erect a um, big billboard anywhere you wanted. I'd say. Hmm. I don't know. It probably sounds cliche, but I'd probably say something like, you know, carpe diem, like seize the day. Mm. Uh, or nah, people, people will be like, Oh, that's stupid. Um, ah, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably say, okay, here, here's, here's a better way to word that I'd say. So I keep it short. I'd say every, each day has a thousand four hundred and forty minutes. Mm. What do you do with them? And just, have a question mark. So it's kind of like gut milk. Better there. than that. Much better than that. <laughs> That's powerful, actually. Yeah, because I mean, yeah, I I'd actually a couple of days recently, I I did like an inventory of what I did, you know, that whole day, and then I just said, wow, like why did I spend two hours on YouTube today? You know, so you really it's illuminating to to see, you know, what you you think about what you're actually doing with your time. Awesome. Where can we follow you, uh, like online or social platforms or anything like that? Yeah, we're, so we're on social, 
uh, at K-I-Z-O performance. We're most active on Instagram. Uh, and we have a Facebook group that you can find uh, through that as well, where we post lots of great links. Uh, and anytime we have uh, webinars or uh, different sessions uh, about tennis and uh, and performance, we we put our links in there. And yeah, and then the website, we put out put out great content on the website, and um, and and so that's another another great great space to look. And uh, on the website, there's you know, there's my, my personal email. So if people have any questions, I, I encourage them to, to ask and because I, I respond to every email. Awesome. So awesome. I encourage people to, uh, to ask and, uh, and take advantage, uh, take advantage. So sweet. And, uh, it's just totally random. Like I, I noticed a couple of times you said Zed. So Zed is Z in like, is that where, where does it come from? Like what dialect or, or does Canadians say Zed? Is that yes? Canadians say Zed. Oh man, why didn't I know that? I'm not cultured enough. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I used to say Z, and then uh, and then they almost kicked me out of the country. So uh, <laughs> oh man. So <laughs> uh, yeah, I know you guys say uh, Z down there. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, we say we say Zed. Ah, cool. Okay. Some, right. some slight difference. Slight differences. Not not too big, but. Um, some slight differences in spelling and stuff as well. Oh, very cool. Now I can speak to my uncles or say the alphabet properly. Excellent. Right? Excellent. Yeah, they're all from uh, Vancouver. Made a Z. Z. <laughs> Sweet. Um, so Zoran, uh, you know, really appreciate all the advice today. I'm I'm going to end with this question that you probably heard before, and I that I end with all the time. Um, but what is one key tip that you can give our audience to help us improve our tennis games? Invest in your mental game. Do. Pick, pick one thing you liked from this episode, whether that's visualizing, setting match intentions, some sort of recovery strategy, and apply it. Like pick one thing and make it into, into a habit. That's it. That's my, that's my tip. And, and I hope, uh, hope your listeners got value out of this. I, I enjoy talking to you. Uh, God, I, I always – is it um, Mirban? Yeah, yeah, perfect. Yep, Mirban, yep. Mirban, okay, good. Yeah, I really enjoyed speaking with you, and and I hope we can do this again. And uh, you know, if you're you're up in BC, give me a shout, and we'll we'll meet up. I definitely will, Zoran. Uh, really appreciate it, and I appreciate you and all your work and your impact that you're having on you know countless players and people because it's really the mental you know aspect of tennis and life is just uh, unbelievably important. It starts there. Um, as to, you know, what we do in the future and, and how, how we'll end up being. So uh, thanks a lot and really a pleasure speaking with you and thanks a lot for your time. Yeah, great speaking with you as well. All right. I really hope you enjoyed my interview with Zoran. I really appreciate Zoran coming on to the show and giving us a lot of great knowledge about how we can achieve peak performance and improve our mental game and just become better overall players and thinkers uh, through our positive thoughts and habits. So I really appreciate that. And I would also really appreciate it if you would subscribe to the Tennis Files podcast, and you can do that on your favorite podcast app of choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other podcast app. So, And that would put all of the episodes straight into the podcast app of your choice um, as soon as I publish them, and also would really help out the rankings. So would appreciate that a lot if you would subscribe. And I also want to leave you with a quote, as I often like to do at the end of the show. And this one 
is by Robin Sharma. I've, I've really been enjoying his content on YouTube and other platforms lately. Great thinker in the area of mindfulness and positive mentality. And he said, everything is created twice, first in the mind and then in reality. And as I said at the top of the show, the mind is the most important, incredible tool that we have. And it's just really important to put more of a focus on developing your mental game. And, uh, you know, everything starts there. You can look at something, you know, you can look at a performance, a match, and a result, and then you can tell yourself many negative things, or you can tell yourself many positive things, and, you know, you can easily spin something one way or the other, and that's going to have a big effect moving forward. So uh, the mind is a powerful thing. Do not let it go to waste. All right. Well, with that, thank you so much for listening and uh, all the uh, links, including Kizo Performance, which you should check out. The Zoran's website is at tennisfiles.com slash 131 for episode 131. Really hope you enjoyed this one. Thanks, as always, uh, for your support. And you can send me any questions that you have at mirbon at tennisfiles.com. That's M-E-H-R-B-A-N at tennisfiles.com. Looking forward to hearing from you. And I will see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. This is Mirban signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files Podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.